Welcome to our latest podcast. It's called For the Love of the Game, presented by Horsebills.com. I'm Bob Ike, joined by my business partner, Mark Dosh. And Mark, we had a long and informative conversation with Mike Piazza, not the baseball player, but the head of Zilla Racing Stable. He gave us a lot of ins and outs on the way their operation works, founded in 2012, and uh, a really interesting conversation that you conducted the interview, Mark. Yeah, it was a great conversation with Mike. He went into a lot of detail about how the process works in both acquiring the horses and managing the syndicate, in choosing a trainer, in deciding where to run your horses and the importance of that and how that needs to be communicated to uh, the owners in the syndicate and basically uh, a rundown of how the industry works for either someone that's trying to learn more about the industry. I think it's a good educational piece to kind of hear it from someone that's been in it for a while and, and has done it from, from scratch as far as from buying horses at the sales and from claiming horses and for people who are also in this industry, maybe to pick up some new um, things about how people operate uh, and, and learn that way as well. Um, it's interesting to, to note ba- talking about the placement of horses and um, doing things the right way, trying to win races, but also being realistic with what, what kind of a horse you have and taking all the information that you have at your disposal and making the right decision. And uh, in this game, you, you notice very quickly that the, the people that are doing it right have a good grasp of that. And when you're, when you're betting on the horses, when you see the same connections running horses at 40, 50, 60 to 1 with 3 4% winning percentages, a lot of times there's a good reason for that. And there's, another, there's a good reason why the, the sharper outfits are running at lower odds and winning a lot, a lot of the races at a higher percentage. And Zilla Racing has had over 81 wins, $3.6 million in purse earnings at a 19% win strike rate. Uh, a couple of real nice stakes winners, one of them named Celtic Chaos, who's made over 650000 And also, Mark, I thought it was interesting the process they go through at sales. They have a team, they have a limited budget, and they shortlist it down to uh, a couple of horses per sale, and uh, they, they've gotten lucky, too. So uh, very much uh, Mike expressed efficiency. It was one of their key words with trainers and in the way they purchase and trying to uh, really present the whole thing to their partners, not as an investment, but as an entertainment and package like buying season tickets somewhere and uh, look at it for the experience, not necessarily that you're going to get a great return on investment in this game, which is very tough to own horses and make a profit. Yeah, and he did say that, but I think at the same time, everyone, you know, while you have to go in it with realistic expectations about your investment, um, you also want to try and do the best by, by people's investment and, and do the best you can to, to make money or minimize losses when, when it's applicable. So um, going into it, you have to understand that it's a risky investment, but at the same time, it'll be the most enjoyable investment you'll probably ever make. Hope you enjoy this interview with Mike Piazza from Zilla Racing Stable, and we'll be back after the interview to close out the show. You're listening to For the Love of the Game, presented by Horsebills.com. Welcome back to the For the Love of the Game podcast presented by Horsebills.com. I'm Mark Dosh, and today we're joined by Zilla Racing founder and syndicate partnership manager, Mike Piazza. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Good afternoon, Mark. Thanks for having me. Great. So uh, 
as the the name of the podcast is titled is for the love of the game so we always like to start by going back to your roots in the sport and how you were introduced to the game and uh just kind of start from there tell us about where that started from sure uh, just typical, you know, growing up was always um, around horse racing. My parents brought me to the track at an early age. Um, as I got older, um, I started getting more interested in using my analytics side, uh, started handicapping races and things like that. Then I just wanted to get deeper and started to get involved in ownership. And then um, coming from a business background, graduated from Siena College as an accountant and um I uh, just saw there was a market there for other people like me who wanted to kind of expand into the industry, but a lot of people don't have the capital. Uh, horses are very expensive to take care of. I mean, when you think of one horse, you know, it doesn't seem like it's a lot, but a horse at $50,000 a year to take care of, if you had 10, which doesn't seem like that high of a number, right. you're looking at a half of a million dollars to just to take care of the horses. So I mean, when you put it in that kind of picture, you can see where it really just makes sense, where you can pull resources from other people together, gives you more purchasing power, reduces the risk, um, and it kind of gives you access to the whole thing, just as you would if you own the horses outright. So just kind of saw an angle there and um, started Zilla Racing back in 2012. And we just kind of took off there. So when you talk about your early days, was that always uh, in New York, based in upstate New York, around Saratoga, or where did those uh, beginnings start? Yep, right at Saratoga. I lived, grew up about 20 minutes south of Saratoga, um, and um, pretty much all New York up until started Zilla Racing, and we started expanding a little bit into Florida, Gulfstream Park, and started running in other tracks. And you know, we're looking to expand outward. The majority of our clients now um, predominantly live in New York, so they like to be there, attend the races, but we're trying to you know, tap into the Florida market and Kentucky. Cool. So obviously growing up in that part of the country, a hotbed of horse racing in Saratoga, that that the area and the track um, I'm sure means a lot to you. We just we just finished up another season at the spa. So uh, tell us how, how the meet went for you and kind of what that area and that track means to you. Well, even just to run at Saratoga um, is extremely, it's like, it's hard to put words to it, but there was another owner that was with another syndicate who had a horse run his first time. Um, and the horse debuted, made in special weight Saratoga, and he finished fourth. And he was so hot and aggravated. I saw him over at the replay screen. Um, I know who he is, actually. But um, And I talked to a friend of his the next morning, and he said, yeah, he was just so pissed off that he finished fourth. And I don't think people understand. Just First off, when you buy a young horse at an auction, just getting a horse to the races is an accomplishment. It doesn't seem like it would be. But these horses have to go through so much to get to the races. And we put a lot on them. And you know, they don't all make it. And if they do make it, to be able to run on the biggest stage, Saratoga, as a two-year-old is such an accomplishment in itself. And just to see the frustration on someone's face to run fourth in Saratoga, a racetrack which, you know, it, it, it's just so difficult to win. Um, and, you know, I see that frustration and I, it just kind of makes me realize more how important it is 
to us, the partners that we deal with. Um, you know, at a minimum, we like to have our horses up there training if we can get them up there. But one thing with Saratoga, it's the biggest stage. We all want to run there, especially with our two-year-olds. But we cannot, and this is a big thing we stress from the moment we buy our horses, we don't tell the horses when they're going to run. We let the horses tell us. So a lot of our partners will ask, hey, if I buy into this horse, is he going to debut at Saratoga? And I, I, I don't like that because what it's basically saying is, you know, we they want to make sure that th this horse only has value to them if they're going to run in Saratoga. And we have to think bigger picture. Um, it'd be better to run in Saratoga as a three-year-old and a four-year-old and a five-year-old. But I kind of feel like too often these young horses are kind of just pushed a little bit too hard to make Saratoga. And that's what the drawback of the timing of Saratoga because most of these sales are, you know, the March, April, May sale. Um, those horses are kind of getting pushed to make Saratoga because there's a lot of partners besides ours and owners themselves who want to run their two-year-olds in Saratoga. In a perfect world, I wish Saratoga could begin in the fall. Like, obviously, that will never happen, but I'm just trying to say that if we could take the big stage for two-year-olds and shift it a little bit later in the year, I think it would be better off for the horses, and more of these horses would make the big races. So I try to just get our partners to – Think bigger picture, um, try to take some of the, you know, the pressure of running in Saratoga off it too. But there are a lot of horses that when I go to the auction, I know I can't buy because I know if I buy them, I buy them with their, own, you know, Zilla Racing uh, doesn't get any capital up front. We buy the horses with their own money first and then we syndicate them. So if I'm if I buy a horse and say, hey, you know what, this horse has zero percent chance of making Saratoga. Um, and a 0% chance it even trains in Saratoga, I'll have difficulty selling that horse out. Um, even if that horse has a boatload of potential as a three-year-old, it's just they want the instant gratification, and that's just how important Saratoga means to them. And I just uh, it's unfortunate because I think we do put our horses you know, in a position to fail more than we need to because of the timing of Saratoga. Right. Yeah, so along those lines, you talk about doing right by the horse and how important it is to win at Saratoga. So you've been very blessed with the horse that you've had since he was a two-year-old by the name of Celtic Chaos. Uh, he's won multiple stakes for you. He was a repeat winner of the John Morrissey this summer. He's earned over 650000 When you do things the right way and you're rewarded with a horse that's that's brought you so much success, what does that mean for you and your partners? Well, it's interesting because with Celtic Chaos um... – when we bought him in the auction, first year uh, stallion, uh, Dublin, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of excitement buzzing. Um, and we bought him, my bloodstock agent, Connor Foley, um, he said, hey, you know what? We should probably pay no more than 50000 for this horse. And the one thing that we've always done is we kind of stick to our guns. Um, everything's well thought out, calculated, um, which puts us in a position not to make, you know, too drastic of a decision on the fly. So we're in the ring, and he goes for 50000 and I thought it was us, but it wasn't us. So he's like, just let's go one more time. And I'm like, you know, I really don't want to go over what we discussed. And I had a quarter, no, about I had about $300,000 to spend for that auction I budgeted. Mm -hmm. And he's like, just go one more, and I go one more, and we get him for 55000 And And all the other horses we went after, I didn't get and I was like so mad. I like I left the sale. Like I can't believe I go down there with a few hundred thousand to spend, and all I come home was with this friggin' Dublin. And I was like kind of like disappointed. And he's like, trust me, he's a nice horse. And I kind of like was really disappointed. 
And this horse, and if you read recent workout reports, like, you know, these guys that do the workout reports, like DRF and Bruno and these guys, yeah, his workout reports are pathetic. I mean, this horse is the laziest horse you'll ever see in the morning. He looks terrible. And as a two-year-old, when we he was breezing, the, the feedback was this horse is no good. So we had Jose Ortiz breeze him. Jose's like, Mike, this horse ain't no good. We had Manny Franco breeze him. He said, this horse is no good. So here I am trying to come up with a plan, you know, you know, tell the partners, hey, you know, we bought a bad one. And, you know, up in Saratoga, as a two-year-old, <laughs> he was ready to run. And there were no maiden claiming races so for two-year-olds for New York bred. So we said, okay, you know, he's ready. We'll throw him in the maiden special way first time out. He goes off like 30 to 1. He's 16, 25 lengths back at like, you know, his, his little chicklet on the screen there at the bottom off the screen. So if you weren't there live, you're, you figured this horse must have broke down or just stopped. And then all of a sudden he comes like kind of running with a good close, still loses by 15, 20 lengths. So it was like, okay, he did enough running that, all right, maybe he could win a maiden claimer at Belmont. But we go back to Maiden Specialty with him, and he just closes and he wins. And ever since then, um, you know, he's just he just shows up to work every day. He's not flashing in the morning. There's so many horses that show you so much promise in the morning, and they don't show up in the afternoon. This horse is the complete opposite. He doesn't show up at all in the morning. And he's a, if you look at it, you know, he's kind of a smart horse. He probably figured it out. Like, hey, you know what? I take it. I take it off in the mornings and. You know, I get fed the same. I get all the same love, and everybody still comes and pets me and gives me mints. And uh, he's just been—he's been a home run for us, and he's been a, you know, a, a horse for us that's kind of, you know, put us on a map a little bit. You need those breakout horses. I kind of feel like we still haven't had that horse yet. Um, but horses like Celtic Chaos and a couple others that we've had, have, you know, at least, you know, got our, you know, I kind of look at it like we're the airplane, and. You know, we're on the runway, we're taking off, and we're kind of, you know, you know, going up through the sky, hitting a little bit of turbulence, but we're still we're still ascending. Uh, we just haven't reached, you know, that peak altitude that you know we're hoping to get to. Yeah, just like anything, it it takes time to uh, to, to reach that success a lot of time, and so um, you got to take the successes that you get along the way. It's great that uh, you'd rather have what you have with him than a morning glory that that shows a lot of promise in the morning that does nothing in the afternoon. You mentioned some of the other horses that you have, uh, another horse, a filly by the name of English soul. She just came back off a layoff and she ran, uh, she ran second a couple of times and then fifth in a stakes at Saratoga. And she's also a multiple stakes winner. What's, what's next on the agenda for her? And do you have any good stories about her? Yeah. So, um, working with Oracle bloodstock, Connor Foley and, uh, Jim Patchett, uh, we were looking to buy one horse for Ray Handel. Uh, Ray was still in his, you know, he's still obviously a young trainer, but this was his really early stages. And we, um, as a team, we kind of, uh, Connor and Jim do their own thing. I do my own thing. Um, Connor and Jim create a short list. Then I create my own short list. And then we kind of see where we match. Um, that short list that Connor and Jim made uh, went to Ray. So Ray comes down. And to save time, he goes and looks at the horses that makes Connor and Jim shortlist. And he, you know, says yes or no. And then he kind of makes it a shorter list. Then I go and review those horses. And then I approve or disapprove of that. And it's like this process. And then Ray um, took the list that Connor made, took the list that I made, and narrowed it down to two horses. 
and it was a temple city that he, he also bought that horse the same year too. Um, and he came to me, he's like, okay, here's the final two of, off the list that I love. Um, I'll leave it with you. And luckily, you know, I picked English soul out of the two. The other horse ended up winning like a maiden claiming race or something like that. But, uh, that was a huge, uh, you know, teamwork process, you know, it's such so many filters a horse has to go through before we end up with it. Um, so it was really like a team effort. If it wasn't for Connor and Jim shortlisting that horse, we don't have her. If she doesn't have, if I don't match her on my side, we don't get her. If Ray doesn't narrow it down to those two horses, we don't have her. And if I don't pick her out of those two horses, we don't have her. Ray would still have her because Ray was going to buy the other one no matter what. Um, so it really was just a team effort. And that's what's most rewarding is when you put all the work in as a team and you actually, you know, have something good come out of it. Um, last race that she ran up in Saratoga, she ran in the Yaddo Stakes, which was just a complete weird race because on paper, we're clearly the speed. Um, we broke out pretty slowly and I'm not really sure what happened, but somehow, you know, the pace was pretty slow. Um, and we're not up on the front end. I mean, the, the, the half was 50 and two, um, 50.5. I mean, so 50 and one or no, right. 50 and, and, um, you know, we're, we're in the back where that's the kind of pace we should be out in the front commanding the lead. Um, but we ended up scoping a little bit of blood. So what we did is we sent her to a farm in Saratoga, gave her two weeks off just to go out to the field and eat some grass. Uh, she came back in training. She's probably scheduled to breeze. She's up in Saratoga now. I think we're going to have her breeze this weekend over the turf up at the Oklahoma. Um, and we're probably going to point her to one of the two New York bread stakes that are coming up next month. Um, we're going to nominate her to the turf and the dirt stakes because she's done well on both. We did. We wanted to make sure we saw what she could do uh, as a turf horse. She obviously has run some good races on the turf this year. You know, she did win some dirt races last year. Those were a little bit different. Those were against New York breads that were restricted to three-year-olds. A little bit different ball game now facing older. Um, the open company, we have to run the open company races. We're going to be obviously facing much tougher horses than New York Breds. So I kind of wear her. I think we're going to just look at both of these stake races, nominate to both, and kind of see where we probably fit the best um, and go from there. Because we like to keep around for the winter to run in the, on the dirt this year. Um, so we're going to kind of just keep both of our options open. Do you do you do you target uh, when you're going to the sales? A lot of time, do you, do you try and target New York breads? Well, we definitely target them, but kind of like indirectly. Like, so we try to look at every horse through the same lens, um, and you know, put them through the same process. We watch them breeze live, go through the slow motion video, watch them how they move and how they use themselves in slow mo. Then we go look at them in person, and if they check all the boxes. And then you scroll down at the bottom of the page and say, oh, hey, this is New York bread. Then that's just a bonus. Um, the one thing that New York breads do offer is it puts us in a you know bucket of horses that we could probably afford. Um, you know, so it kind of, you know, just works out that way. A lot of the horses that we tend to like that are not New York bread, they tend to kind of go out of our budget. Um, but we do give them a second look. So if a horse is kind of like, Okay, um, if he was an open company type of horse, then he would come off. But because he's a New York bred, those horses might stay on. So like, we don't really give extra credit for being a New York bred. 
on the top side of it, but we might forgive you a little bit if you are a New York bred, if you kind of lack some of the other qualifications that we'd like to see in a horse. Right. And the lucrative purse structure makes it even better. You know, if you, you get a, a good value on them, then if you get a stakes caliber horse, there's lots of six figure stake races that you can go after throughout the year at the different tracks and even up at Finger Lake sometimes. What, um, so you talked about Ray, Ray Handel as one of your trainers and, and Brad, I know you have a horse with Brad Cox. Uh, what, how do you go about picking what trainers you're going to use and tell us a little bit about your relationships with how you work with them? So yeah, I'll start with like the first one that the one that's been with us the longest that we've used right now. I would probably say it's probably Ray. Mm -hmm. um, we used to in the beginning. We had a couple of horses with Tom Morley, and Ray was uh, the assistant trainer for Tom at the time. So we got to build a relationship with Ray then. Um, but I had no intention of um, you know using Ray. Um, but one day we bumped into each other in Saratoga. And he's, he's telling me that, you know, he's really struggling to get horses. In fact, he actually said to me, he goes, I got one foot in the grave. So I said to him, I said, listen, I can tell you what. If you want to do a couple claimers and we'll do a couple deal horses where basically he pays all the expenses of the horses. Um, we buy the horse or claim the horse with our money. He pays all the expenses. And then in return, he gets to keep 65% of the purse. Um, so it was like, you know, Hey, if you think you're good and you think you can do this, well, here's an opportunity because if you do good, more horses are going to come. And if you don't do good, you're, you're going to probably be out of business. Um, which is what it sounds like you're kind of headed that way anyway. Um, so we started to do, um, a couple no expense claims. We won some races. We won in Saratoga with Ray. Next thing you know, Ray's got, you know, he's getting interviewed on the, um, you know, the TV shows they have up there and mm -hmm. uh, he's gaining more traction. He wins a few more races. All of a sudden he gets more horses more and, you know, the rest was history. Um, so, and he also works with Connor and Jim at Oracle to buy his horses um, with his other clients now. And we've also, we've actually had clients who've been with us, who started with us, who actually went on their own. Uh, Randall Manor Racing, Couter Racing, uh, Blue Streak Racing. Um, all these guys were originally with us, went on their own and used Ray as their trainer. Um, so they formed obviously a good bond. Um, Ray's very personable. You know, he gets how important social, the social media is in today's market. Um, end of the day, new owners, they want information. They want to know they want photos, they want videos, they want to know how their horses are doing. And it's kind of like one of our angles is to work for us. You have to be a trainer who's going to give feedback, tell us everything about the horses that, you know, whether it's good or bad um, and, you know, provide us with information so we can come watch the horses train in the morning. Um, and, you know, we video record those, get those out to the partners. So Ray's just been, you know, it's been great with that. And, it's grown and that's why he's gotten bigger and bigger and he's, he's getting more and more horses. He just left the, the two-year-old sales and the yearling sales and he's buying a whole bunch of horses. And, you know, he's, he's, you know, kind of like in a position I am and we are with Zilla racing is, you know, he's kind of like that airplane who's kind of, you know, ascending through the sky right now too. Um, so it's been great working with Ray. Um, the one drawback when you work with young trainers and if any trainers are listening to this or any owners, like I'm sure they'll relate, but here's, here's what's kind of like 
a little bit of an issue. So when you use a young trainer and you buy a young horse, if the horse turns out to be not so good, the first reaction is, well, it must be the trainer because they assume well, he's a young trainer, he's less experienced, rightfully so. Um, so it must be because of the young trainer that the horse is no good. So a lot of your partners will kind of, you know, not accept that very well when your young horses don't work out with the young trainer. However, when you use a top-end trainer, someone who's been doing it year after year after year, if the horse turns out to be no good, the owners can accept it. Well, that trainer knows what he's doing. He's one of the best. So it must be the horse. So I kind of feel that's the area where the young trainers kind of, you know, they quite, they don't really deserve that opinion of them, but it is what it is. Um, so when I buy horses and I have to syndicate them out afterwards, I have to kind of sell the upside and the downside of, you know, the experienced trainers like the Brad Cox guys who've been doing it year after year and the upside and downside of using a young trainer. But that's kind of the area with the young trainers. You know, they, they get the run to the stick because when it doesn't work out, it's always the horse's fault or, uh, or the trainer's fault. Whereas the experienced trainer, he gets to pass. It must be the, the horse. Um, and then we, Brad Cox has most of our horses. Um, just from, I'm very, re, like, I'm all about results. My main thing for Zula Racing that I, I focus the most on is for us to be as efficient as possible. When you leave a two-year-old sale, um, it really makes no difference what you pay for a horse once you leave the sale. You could buy a horse for $10. You could buy a horse for 1000 or 500000 It does not matter. When that horse starts training yeah. and that horse gives you feedback, that's all that matters is what kind of horse do you have today, not what kind of horse did you have when the hammer dropped. And one thing, so for us, it's all about being efficient and about being able to identify the quality of the horse you have as quickly as possible. And I've always watched Brad, and I kind of feel like of all the trainers that are out there, I have a hard time trying to find someone who I would view as more efficient than Brad Cox. Um, so I was always intrigued. The only thing that kept me from using him was he doesn't have a lot of horses in New York. Um, but it got to a point where I was like, it doesn't matter. Like he has horses here. So as long as we keep adding horses to his stable, like he'll, he'll stay here. He'll get, get bigger. He'll grow here. Um, we also worked with Liz Crow from BSW Bloodstock and Bradley Weisbord. And Liz had reached out to Brad for me and put me in contact with him. And he's just been, I'll tell you right now, if I had to only use one trainer of all our trainers, like it would have to be Brad because the guy gets results. He's got the best billing. He's got the lowest vet bills. He, he has no additional add-ons on his training bills. His commission structure is the lowest in the game. He only charges commission for top three. He had Arklow finish fourth in a Breeders' Cup race for $4 million. The, the, the owners got $240,000 for fourth place, and he didn't even take a commission. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's astonishing. And then you have other trainers who, um, you know, you have a horse finish fifth place in a, in a never win two 16,000 race, and never win two lifetime 16,000, getting fifth in a five-horse field, 
and you're paying these guys 13% commission. Um, so with Brad, you just get everything. Um, he's really upfront and honest. Like he'll tell you straight up, your horse is no good. And we like that. I know a lot of owners probably don't want to hear that, but Brad's going to tell you the truth and he's very efficient. So he's been a big home run for us. Um, and we just brought on Joe Sharp. Um, another guy I see working hard. I bump into him at the sales all the time. And, um, you know, it's just kind of looking for kind of that. I, I like fresh blood, you know, people who are hungry. Um, he has his footprint, obviously, in Kentucky as well, just like Brad. And we kind of do want to expand outward. Um, and Joe is going to he's planning on going to Gulfstream Park this winter, which is big for us. Uh, whereas Brad kind of just focuses predominantly on fairgrounds. So um, they're, they're, that's basically our three trainers right now is Joe Sharp, Brad Cox, and Ray Handel. And, um, you know, really pleased with all three of them. Well, you talked about it's really interesting, all the, all the points and what you what you talk about. And you use the word efficient uh, multiple times in re regards to, to Brad Cox. Uh, in addition to what you kind of already said makes him such a great trainer, Without word efficient, what what are there other things that you can pinpoint as far as what what he does efficiently, um, specific things that make him what he is? Yeah, so like the biggest thing is you got to get a line and an accurate line on your horses, right? So kind of think of like if you ever play poker, the trainer's job is to tell you what card you're holding. Okay, so if a trainer tells you, and hey, let's say if a trainer's wrong, he says, hey, Mike, you know you got pocket aces over here. Mm -hmm. You got pocket kings. And then you play the hand, meaning you put your horse in specific races because you think you have pocket kings, and then your horse shows up like 10-7 off suit. Like, that's the inefficiency. Right. Brad, Brad can tell you so quickly and accurately, like, hey, this horse is 9-8 suited. This horse is 2-7 off suit. This horse – and it's just amazing. Like, the, the his – it, the level of efficiency with this guy is just, it's, 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 it's just, I don't know, man. It's like, it's unmatched. I just, I said, I'm a big numbers guy. I follow this stuff. It's all I do. And is incredible. And a lot of times, you know, when you work with partners, they don't want to hear the bad stuff, but ultimately, again, going back to efficiency, I'll give you a good example. Like we had a horse that we just ran, um, uh, a horse named Zandora, I'll just use her as an example. I mean, there's plenty of horses, but like we bought Zandora for 100,000, 110,000 in the March um, sale two years ago. Uh, Liz Crow was the bloodstock agent that picked her out. Um, and she got two breezes as a two year old, got some bone bruising. We stopped on her, let her get better, brought her back as a three year old. And Brad straight up said, Look at this horse after one race. I mean, he told us before the race that she's not. She ain't good enough, you know. So I have to tell my partners that. Now that's the last thing someone wants to hear when they spend a hundred thousand for a horse and it's got to, you know, be turned out for eight months. Hey, you know, the trainer doesn't think that highly of your horse, but that's what we need. We need the honesty, and we need someone who can address that and be efficient because otherwise we're going to make bad decisions going forward, which is going to compound, um, you know, the horse you know, not turning out as good as we'd hope. So after she had ran once, um. He said, listen, we, we got to go made and claim her with her. And I like, you know, I get it. Like, I'm all about efficiency, too. If I was a trainer, that's how I would do it. Um, but I told all the partners that, hey, you know, we're going to run her for maiden 40. And they like lost their minds. Like they couldn't believe it. 
I mean, I got some of the nastiest emails, like saying, you know, if you run this horse for forty thousand, I'll never get another horse with you ever again. Um, and instead of just absorbing the efficiency here and like how accurate we're, you know, assessing our horses' abilities, who it doesn't matter what we paid for them, um, you know, at the time of the auction. That's why when you look at the racing form, you see all these horses that were bought for a lot of money that are running in maiden claiming races. Um, it just happens. Like this, this business, this industry is tough. A lot of horses fail, and there's a lot of money that is spent at auctions, and these horses turn out to do nothing. Um, so we run her for the forty, and you know she wins by twelve lengths in an off the turf race, and that's where we kind of get. My opinion, and I'm sure a lot of others feel the same way, but when a horse wins a race off the turf, I draw a line to that race because like it's just those races are always bad. And it, it tells you nothing. Um, so anyway, she ran a couple more races after that. And we said, hey, listen, we got to move on. We got a runner for 25000 in Saratoga. And again, the partner, a couple of partners went bonkers. And I had to explain to them, like, look, at this is how it works. Like, we're being efficient. We're trying to recoup as much as we can um, and move on. Free up our resources. We don't want to just keep wasting them. And, you know, because we made a bad purchase, let's free the resources up, get a better horse. We ran it for 25000 It looked like she was going to win in Saratoga. She got beat by a length. And all the partners were, like, going crazy. Like, oh, I can't believe we lost her. And I, they, they wanted to claim her back. And she ran back. And I was like, look, at that race, they came home, like, the last furlong in, like, 15 seconds. Like, I mean, it was a bad race. <laughs> and the horse that won that race came back and ran basically the same race, like a three-year-old only race. And got beat by six lengths and, you know, didn't do well. Um, but anyway, after Zandora got claimed, she comes back and runs a, uh, a clunker for Chris Englehart, where she, she was one of the favorites. Um, let's see. She, uh, yeah, she was four to one off the claim. She got beat by 13 lengths. They threw on a turf just uh, two weeks ago and then claiming 30. And she went off five to one and got beat by 11 on the turf. Um, and that's the nature that that's what Brad Cox does. Now, look, at you're going to claim a horse off of Brad that is going to do good. Um, but that's going to happen to the best. Of, I mean, look at maximum security was in a maiden 16 race. You know, um, that horse had just won the PA Derby. He was he was um, in that same race. Yeah, he's in the same race. I mean, so like it just shows you that like Palace, I mean, Palace, you know, Palace, Linda Rice claimed Palace off of Bill Mott for 20000 That horse went on to win a couple million dollars in Stallion. Um, it just happens. Like, you're going to lose horses. But as an owner, you just have to accept it. Like, all that matters is what information is that horse giving you today. And you got to just let the past go. Don't worry about what you spent. Don't worry about what the horse did, you know, six months ago. Because every day they're giving you new information. And it's kind of just like playing poker. And that's like what Brad's just so good at. Like he basically, you know, plays the hand as good as you can play. It. And I just, and then to, to get the billing practice, you know, the billing that he gives you where you don't pay all these extras and it's just amazing. And like, just you go to the barn. It's like the most organized barn you'll ever be at. Um, the communication is just top notch. It's just, you know, I'm just real happy. And my, my only frustration is I don't have good enough horses to give them. You know, Brad's got all these, you know, nice steak horses and, you know, we're not there yet and we're close. I mean, I kind of feel like we're getting there. 
Um, and then we got our young guys like Ray who are kind of there with us too. And, you know, we'll grow together. And then I said, we just added Joe. And um, so far with Joe, his communication level has been really, really good. So um, we have our first horse running off the claim, I think October 2nd, I think. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Cool. Yeah. So it's funny how when you talk about these guys that are, are doing well and everyone's always looking for a reason why and there's all these different kind of speculations. But at the end of the day, most of them do well because they they're better at their job than, than the next guy. And they, they handle things the right way in a lot of the ways that you've discussed. Uh, you talked about how challenging the industry can be and anyone that's been in the game understands that um knowing that what do you do as far as working on selling points to bring in new clients um based off of you know like you said a lot of the times once you get somebody in the just the everything that happens in the industry with the horses you're going to get people complaining and a lot of people um might have a negative view of just the industry as an investment, knowing that it's risky, and then with kind of the current status of affairs in the industry, uh, what are you doing to 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 sell what Zilla offers and what the industry offers to potential new people coming in? Yeah, the first thing I do is I try to find out you know what's important to them, because if they are viewing horse ownership through the lens of a like a financial investment, then I know it's not going to work out because the odds are stacked against you in this industry. Um, going back to what I was saying earlier, $50,000 a year to take care of a horse, like that's just crazy. Like there's so many people who don't even make $50,000 on a year. That's what it takes to care of one horse. So like when you buy a horse at an auction, like you're already 50,000 in a whole year after year. So like then if you spend, you know, going back to the auction, like with our budget, we're like an NBA scout. And we're trying to put together a good team, but we can only select players from community college because our budget is pretty low. Yet we have to try to compete against the best who are drafting players out of Division I college. Um, they can buy any horse they want. Now, higher purchase price doesn't guarantee you're going to have success, but what a, a bigger budget allows you, it allows you to access to any horse you want. So because of our limitation on our budget, we're kind of capped. There's so many horses that we like. Like, yeah, we've had English Soul and we've had Celtic Calf, but we keep missing out on these horses that are winning great at stake races because we can't afford them. Like, you know, we, we're on them just like so many others are, but we don't have the budget. So we're division, you know, we're drafting community college players and trying to compete against Chad Brown and all these guys who are getting division one players. Um, so if someone's coming into this business from a financial point of view, I let them know, let them know that listen, the odds are against us. Um, but I also try to sell the the point that there's value in this that goes beyond just the financial side of it, right? Like if you buy a stock, basically you buy the stock and then you just check on it every few weeks, whatever you do, right? You don't, but like there's no excitement to it. You don't get to experience the stock or the company. But this is an experience. Just like going on a vacation, people spend thousands of dollars to go on cruises and vacations and whatever you do for fun. So if you could put value in that, that you get to experience this whole thing, you come to the races, meet other you know, partners, um, get to meet the trainer, the jock, and you experience it. Like You have to put a value on that. So I just noticed as we evolve, the people who are predominantly heavy gamblers, or people who are looking at this just from a financial lens, they're the ones that we seem to 
um, have the difficulty with. And the partners who understand that it's a tough business and most horses will lose money, they're the ones we do better with. But here's the catch for me. Just because it's an industry that it's tough to make money, especially when you're buying horses from division, you know, community college players, even though, and I do have a lot of people who come to me and say, hey, Mike, I know I'm going to lose money. I know I'm, I'm playing with money I can afford to lose, so don't worry about it. I know it's part of the business. But that doesn't give me an excuse to be inefficient. Um, and even though we're supposed, you know, most of our horses are supposed to lose money, it's not a reason for me to, you know, make sure we're as efficient as possible. That's why I try to align myself up with the people who also operate that way. Um, and um, those, those are the kind of people that we like to do business with. Um, and they're pleasant. And then, you know, we have um, people come to us and they say, hey, look, I have X amount of money to invest. And they'll give me a range. Um, hey, I have, you know, anywhere from five to 10,000 I can put into this horse. Uh, something I'm, I know I have to be doing differently than everybody else. I always steer the person to the lowest amount that they, that they bring up because now that's like, that works against me because it'd be better for me if I could sell out the horses faster with less people. But I would rather have somebody regret that they didn't buy more than regret they didn't buy less. Right. Because whether you own a small percent of a horse or a bigger percent or the largest percentages, it's not going to change your experience. Like if you're doing this for the right reasons, like it's not going to change what you experience, but it can affect the way you experience the financial side of it. So I know like I'm not going to over deliver. If you look at all our offerings, like I send out a newsletter for all our offerings. I don't ever put together this, like this amazing sales pitch. It's one thing I don't do. Even when we claim horses, I send out an email to the partners and it's like, hey, this is the horse we like and here's the information on the horse. That's it. And if you have questions, reach out to me and I'll answer those questions. But I don't want to try to sell something to somebody because that's not what I'm doing. Um, and we try to educate everybody. We you know, bring them up to speed, understanding you know, race placement and what conditions a horse you know, runs and uh, what type of efforts are required to win those particular races. Um, so we do our best. And, you know, it's, it's, I think our, uh, the percentage of our partners who stay with us is really high. Um, very, very few leave us and go somewhere else. Um, and we like when, you know, listen, end of the day, there's a lot of syndicates out there. Um, and, you know, experience it. You know, you don't have to just stay with Zillow Racing. You know, you can get horses with us and, we have partners who are with us and with West Point and, um, and other syndicates too. And, you know, we, um, we, we understand that and it works out. There's plenty of horses and owners to go around. And, um, you know, you know, I don't know if you ever follow on Twitter, like there's always um, this big debate going on about super trainers Yeah. And, and should like, you know, should racing do something and limit the amount of horses like a Chad Brown gets and it's bad for racing and stuff like that. Um, and here's how I feel about that. If you have two restaurants next to each other and restaurant A is packed every night, it's got a line going out the door, the food is great, the service is fantastic, and this is where the people voluntarily want to spend their money. They like this restaurant. And then restaurant B next door is empty. 
Nobody's going there. There's seats available. Um, it doesn't matter how hard that guy works. For some reason, those people don't want to go to that restaurant. The last thing you want to do is have some authoritative body come in and say, you know what, restaurant A, you know what, you got too many people here. It's not fair that restaurant B, who's got a you know owner who works his butt off 60 hours a week and he, he's a great guy, um, he deserves more people. Um, you don't want to have some authoritative body come in and say, you know what, we're going to cap how many people come in this place and force them to go to the other restaurant. So when you have owners, because it will have a negative effect. You have owners going to sales, buying horses for hundreds of thousands of dollars, spending $50,000 a year to take care of them. You have to let that owner decide where he wants to put his horse. If He knows how many horses Chad Brown has. If he wants to put that horse in Chad's brown barn, that has to be his option. The minute you cap and say, hey, Chad, you can't have any more horses. you got too many. Now you force this guy to put his horse in some other person's barn. Like He might not buy any more horses because that's what he wants. So I don't know why like everyone is so against super trainers if it's done the right way. Now, look, if there's somebody who's cheating and his stats are inflated and he's winning you know, because he's cheating, that's a whole different point thing. But if a guy is doing a great job, he's efficient and he wins races, like Brad Cox. If Brad all of a sudden, everybody starts sending horses to Brad Cox because he's so good and he's so efficient, like, no. If that's what they want to do, let them do it. That's what's good for racing. You know, one thing that really bothers me in this sport, I can't think of any other business out there where the owner is the one who really takes the raw end of it. Because we're the ones that buy all the horses. We're the ones that got to struggle to break even. Very few of our horses make money. And then it's like, like we're the ones who are like, now, now we want to force us to like, you know, put our horses in barns that we don't want them in. Um, so I just think it's a bad idea overall. And I think the only people who would feel that are against super trainers, I feel for the most part would be the owners of the restaurant that has nobody filling the seats, right? Because he probably feels like he deserves more, more, you know, people in the restaurant because he works hard and, um, people that are, that are not owners because end of the day, it's all it comes down to is you're just restricting the owner's choice. And I'm against that. And, um, I think we got yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, you can't, I mean, it's capitalism, right? There's like we talked about earlier, there's a reason why certain trainers are doing well. Um, aside from, you know, hopefully it's not because of cheating, but like you said, they're efficient. They do things the right way, just like in any business, in any industry, you're going to have some people that do things better than others, whether they're coaches, uh, whether they're, you know, executives in other industries. Um, so these guys, uh, they, they get results and you, you can't, uh, you can't knock them for getting results and try and curtail their business. And it, it should just motivate the other ones that aren't getting the results to, to, to work harder and do better and, and try to achieve that same success. Uh, talking about success, we talked about a lot of the challenges that go into the industry, a lot of the, you know, the, the ups and downs, but a lot of downs. And uh, we always like to talk about uh, or hear stories about uh, success and, and partners, um, successes and stories about when they win a race, uh, kind of the experience that they have. Uh, do, you have. Do you have a good story that you can share with us about just winning a big race and kind of, whether it's you and the partners together or just a partner, uh, a story of, of, of that experience of just winning. And, and, and we know how hard it is to win. So when you win, you really got to enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, there's so many. I mean, the one that sticks out the most for me, um, there's a partner we have. Her name is Joy, Joy Brock. And back when we first started, I was in Saratoga 
and I created a website, zillaracingstables.com. I put up pictures of horses that we didn't even own, and I took Photoshop and like I, you know, just to change the markings on the horses so I wasn't it didn't look like I was like using someone else's horse. Um, had no horses at the time, and I had these pens made up, Zilla Racing pens, and um, I did Travers ticket giveaway. So if you gave me your information, um, I put your name in a hat in a, in a box, and then I did a Travers drawing right at the winter circle at Saratoga. And I gave away these pens. Besides a Travers giveaway, not one person called me. It was like the biggest waste. Like I think I probably had like 500 things sent out. Um, not one. It was so crazy. I'm like, wow, not one. And then a couple months later, Joy calls me up and she wants to order a T-shirt. And she's like, you know what? I might be interested in getting a horse. And she got a horse with us eventually. And uh, she um, she gets a piece of every horse we have. And she's the sweetest, most kindest person in the world. Her and her husband, they live in Canada, but they spend the whole time in Saratoga. And then they go to Florida for the winter. And she's probably one of the most emotional investors that we have. And she's in it for the right reasons. And when we won in Saratoga for the first time with her, it was so special. It meant everything to her. But this year, when Celtic Chaos won the John Morrissey this year, the, the photographer, Adam Congolese uh, for Naira, he said, hey, you know, walk the horse in the winner's circle. And, you know, when you see a horse wins a stake race, you know, the owner usually, you know, walks him around on the track of one or two turns, then he walk him into the winner's circle. Like, I don't like doing that because, like, when you have so many partners like us, like, like, I don't want to be the one that walks the horse in, really, because, like, I kind of feel like, you know, it's their day, too. The owner's like, yeah, I'm the head of Zillow Racing. But it's like, I feel like if they all can't walk the horse in, it's like I kind of would almost rather nobody walk them in. Right. Uh, and, but Adam's like, no, no, one of you's got to walk them in. So last year, I when we won the stake, I, I walked them in. But this year, um, I said to Adam, I'm like, do I got to? Do I have to? I'd rather not. He's like, just please just walk the horse in. So I walked up to the winner's circle and I grabbed Joy by her hand and I walked her out. <laughs> and like, I started crying thinking about it because like, I was so emotional that day. But I grabbed her by her hand and I'm like, I'd like you to walk the horse, you know, in the winner's circle. And she started to cry and like, it just, it made her day. And it was like, to this point, that moment has been like the highlight of this whole thing. And like, I'll never forget that day. It's like, it was just great. So that to me was the highlight for us. And it just kind of really, that's what it's, that's what this is about. You know, and like you get so many people in this industry who are so bitter, you know, they like, they lose a horse and, you know, they see somebody come back and win a race with your horse that you used to have. And they get like, like when we lose a horse and that horse wins for the new connections, like I get the nastiest email, like, but then if the horse doesn't do good for the new people, they don't say anything. Um, we had Adonis Creed. We just lost him in Saratoga this summer for 62500 And he got claimed by uh, Diodoro. And I think they struggled with that horse because he was, like, real high-strong and he was hard to control and he was crazy. That horse, like, even in a couple of his races, he would bolt in the middle of the race, drop the rider. Um, but I think they just couldn't figure him out. And they ran him right back off the claim for 40000 yesterday. First off the claim from 62500 to forty. He ran terribly, 
and I didn't I didn't get one email that said, <laughs> hey, you know, hey, th- thank God we got sixty two five here, you know. But people if, would rather people would rather bitch if they're gonna if they're gonna comment they would rather bitch. That's hard to get. Yeah. It's hard to get uh, positive feedback a lot of the time. Uh, but that, that's a great story that you, that you tell about joy, and that's exactly what what I was looking for when I asked you that question. And that it, it just speaks volumes about how uh, special the sport is and how it can bring people together. And even now when you're recalling the story, getting emotional about it, it's just, it's a great sport and that's uh, why we're in it, why we love it and why we want it to continue to succeed and bring new people in. A couple more things before we wrap it up. We talked a lot about being efficient and uh, you, you, you talked about how you have an accounting background. So Obviously, you made the switch over to horsebills.com earlier this year. Uh, we've talked a lot about how it's helped you out, but just kind of want to um, re- regroup and talk about more about how, how Horsebills has helped your accounting and just also being able to run the entire business yourself still and the feedback that you've gotten from the partners from it. Yeah, so I think it might have been maybe maybe a little over a year, maybe even two years ago when I first saw the horse bills, you know, advertising, advertisement, maybe on Facebook or something. I looked into it and like, I read it and I'm like, it looks good. But one thing that has really bogged me down with QuickBooks, which I use, um, because like it doesn't have, it's not the most efficient thing to use for a partnership. Like if you use it for your own company, like let's say I mow, let's say I mow lawns for a living, or even if you're a trainer, like every client you bill, that revenue and those expenses and the revenues is coming right to the business owner. But with partnerships, every person that owns part of a horse is a separate owner. Like so, like all these revenues and expenses and equities have to be split, you know, accordingly to their percentages. So it's a nightmare. Like you have all this duplicative um, processes to do, and is very time consuming. And like, I just got to the point where I was so overwhelmed with QuickBooks that um, I didn't seek horse bills out because even though I knew there might be, you know, it would free me up more time later, it just wasn't the right time for me. But I didn't want to hire a bookkeeper. I priced out a couple of bookkeepers and, you know, they're more than I wanted to pay because one of the things that kind of gave us a little bit of a launching pad is like, I, uh, basically undersold ourselves like right, right in the beginning um markups were lowest in the industry um all the fees were lowest in the industry like everything was basically i started out as like walmart um and because we didn't have a track record so the only way i could get you to give me a chance would be say hey look at i won't charge the management fee markups are super low if there was any at all and um real low administrative fees and kept everything real low so by doing that, that was good, but it also put limitations on our ability to hire other people to do other functions of the business. Um, and I'm like, you know, I can do this part. So I did it, just got overwhelmed. So then finally I got to a point where I was like, I just got to look into this and you know, reached out to you. He was like, hey, you know, give it a try. And I was very skeptical in the beginning. And oh my God, I mean, it's like, I, I can't say enough of good things. I mean. It, from the moment you get a horse, for me, just assign it to your website so easily. I can assign ownerships to part the partners. So, and just like that, the invoice automatically goes out to them. They can automatically pay it online. I was constantly, when I was invoicing partners, 
first off, it would take me so long to set it up on QuickBooks before I can even issue an invoice. So if I bought a horse at a sale for $100,000, I might not even get that invoice out in the horse set up on QuickBooks probably for two weeks after I bought the horse. That's when you spend a lot of money, that's a lot of time something can go wrong with the horse. Um, so from the setup, getting the invoices out, then all of a sudden, when I when I put the first horse on horse bills, got the invoice out, I had the horse set up and all the invoices out within 20 minutes for one horse. It was unbelievable. And then all the money came in. Like, oh, <laughs> like I'm like, oh my God, like I just recouped all this money. And when you buy a horse at a sale, like they usually give you 15 days to pay. I was always, you know, putting the money out, out f- up front myself. And now I'm still doing that, but I'm getting a lot of that money back before the 15 days is even up. And then issuing invoices every month. I literally go through, I have probably about what, six, maybe eight horses up on your site now. And I can go through within an hour, I can invoice every single horse. So it's so simple. Like to be able to just put in one amount for training, one amount for a vet bill, one amount for any additional things. And just hit basically one button and then have all those invoices broken apart by percentages automatically sent out to the partners and they have the ability to pay online for 50 cents it's just been incredible when i was doing it on quickbooks i had about 20 25 partners on every horse there was a point where we had 23 horses and i was billing monthly if you could think about the volume of checks that were coming in my in in my p.o box i would show up to the p.o box every few days and my p.o box would be full i'd spend all this time ripping envelopes taking a check for this horse, putting in a pile, the next horse put in that pile. And I'd have piles of checks on my dining room table. And then to have to go manually deposit them one by one by one by one. Um, it, that is all gone now. And with horse bills, like I'm literally, you know, I got hardly any checks come in. There's a few people who still like to do it old school. They don't trust online and, you know, they're going to still send their checks in. But all the, like now there's no checks to go to the mailbox for. There's no... There's no checks to rip and put in piles and like there's no manual entry. And then when your horse wins a race, there's nothing more rewarding than getting the, the credit out to the partners. And like to be able, I used to do that one by one by one by one, every horse. Um, I'll tell you, it's, it's been a game changer for us. And like I've actually reduced our admin fees like they're already low, but I reduced it to the partners because like it's just so easy now. Like I can't, you know what I mean? Like I'm getting all the, the bookkeeping done like one Probably like every hour I spend on horse bills would probably be 10 hours on QuickBooks. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's been, Mark, I tell you, I, I don't know who, what other syndicates are using your program, and I'm sure other you obviously do it for trainers and stuff, but I'm, I'm kind of like the trainers that I like to employ. I want trainers to be upfront with me. If my horse is no good, tell me my horse is no good. Don't sugarcoat. I don't like sugarcoating. I can tell you what, there's no sugarcoating telling you how good your product is horse bills site is it's incredible um and the partners love it it's it's just great cool well it's it's really really rewarding to hear that uh really appreciate that and uh like you said there's uh it's great for syndicates like you've experienced but it's also great for trainers there's there's a whole other set set of functionality that we've built for them that makes it very efficient for them so hopefully we can work on getting your guys brad cox ray handel and joe sharp on board as well uh, as we move forward i want to close with one last topic and i've always been fascinated by this me being an la guy you being a new york guy 
Um, obviously, your name, Mike Piazza. There, there's another a gentleman out there with with a with the same name. So, so interested in hearing um, stories about uh, how how it's been living with with the name Mike Piazza uh, in, in and around New York, and how that how that affects you and and potentially affects or helps your business as far as the name recognition day in and day out. You know, what's funny is when I was in my like early twenties, um, somebody would look at my ID if I was going somewhere where I would get ID, and they'd be like. You're not the real Mike Piazza, <laughs> and like the real one, you know, um, which means I'd be the fake one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it was cool. I, I've also played baseball, and um, when I got done playing baseball, I played you know competitive men's softball leagues, and um, even getting up to you know playing other teams, getting up to the plate, you know, the umpire would be you know would see Piazza on the back of my shirt and be like, "Your first name's not Mike, is it?" And I'd be like, "Yeah, it actually is." Um, I kind of felt like it, you know, made put a little bit more on me that I have to be good, right? You you can't have Mike Piazza as a name and be bad. Um, but it's been cool. And then there's, um, I do think some people do think, you know, when they call us or they see us in the entries, and you know, they might think it's, you know, you know, Mike Piazza, the baseball player. Um, but yeah, it's been cool. I mean, they, you know, when he played in L.A. Dodgers, I used to have an L.A. Dodger uniform, and like, you know, I. Uh, I was a big fan of his. Um, thought he was a good player, and you know he had a he had a lot of fans. So even to this day, I'm kind of surprised there's so many people who are young, that are like early 20s now, who like know who he is. And you know, sometimes I'll be at the store buying beer, and I get carded, and you know, the person's like early 20s, and they're like, "You got the same name as that baseball player? Like, how do they know?" Like, you know. It's been a yeah, while. I mean, he's like he's like one of the greatest catchers in major league history. I was I was heartbroken when the Dodgers traded him away. So, but yeah, it is pretty amazing that all these years later people still recognize his name. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. We we knocked out a solid hour, so uh, it was really really good stuff. Uh, wish you continued success, and uh, hopefully we'll get to either uh, see you one day when we head out to New York, or maybe you'll make a, a trek out to uh, California and and visit us out here, and we can we can meet up and and watch some races together. Uh, that was Mike Piazza of Zilla Racing joining us today on the For the Love of the Game podcast. Mike, thanks again for joining us. All right. Thank you, Mark. All right. You've been listening to the For the Love of the Game podcast. Stay tuned for our close, and we'll speak to you shortly. Thanks a lot. Well, thanks again to Mike Piazza and uh, Mark. We really appreciate the kind words about horsebills.com and uh, a real big compliment how it speeds up his process much, much quicker than what he was doing with QuickBooks before. Yeah, definitely good feedback as we get from nearly all of our clients, which is very encouraging, uh, the, the syndicate manager functionality. And I want to emphasize the point, and it's not just the syndicate manager functionality that he discussed that's so great, but functionality for all different types of people involved in the industry, whether it's trainers, other types of vendors and owners. We've built it specifically to how they operate, and it's a game changer for everybody as far as efficiency and building and accounting and just making the whole process easier for everybody involved compared to how things are being done now in the majority of the industry and how they've been done for the past 20, 30, 40 years, which is not a lot different of how most people are doing it now, which is kind of a sad state for a lot of the people um, in the industry not, not having come on board with how technology and how the world works now as we move into 2020. Well, let's talk about a little bit of handicapping in the opening weekend. Uh, Santa Anita starts on Friday, and the two-year-olds are in the spotlight. And these are all Breeders' Cup prep races as we head to that first weekend in November. Uh, Mark, on Friday, 
The first grade one is the Chandelier for two-year-old Phillies. We saw Bast be super impressive winning the Del Mar Debutante. She's going to be a very short price odds-on horse in there. And Johnny V takes over from Drayden Van Dyke, who had that spill on closing day at Del Mar. Baffert wasn't sure if he'd be ready at 100%. But uh, to me, Bast looks like almost a free bingo spot in that spot. Yeah, it's great to see a couple of great ones on Friday at San Lina. Obviously, the eyes of the racing world and the world in general are going to be focused on this meet. So hopefully we can have things go off without a hitch as much as possible and try and stay on course with the positive vibes that have developed over the summer in Del Mar. Bast does seem to be an overwhelming favorite in this race. It is interesting that Baffert Field, he needs to reach out to Johnny V to fly in cross-country to ride a couple of horses. But with these two-year-olds, sometimes from race to race, you might see um, drastic changes in form. So uh, if you're trying to beat her, that's going to be kind of what you can hang your hat on. But if she replicates what she, de- what she did in the debutante or, you know, she could even move forward. And if she does that, then she's going to really be difficult to beat but um, a couple of other options in here you know a couple of our clients have been studying her was a surprise winner of the generous the generous portion at del mar she won that very nicely she's two for two on her career a calibred trained by jerry hondorfer that's going to run under the name of dan ward for the start of this meet and then kp dreaming for jeff mullins who stretched out in her second career start and won nicely at del mar so uh, they might be able to post an upset if bass isn't at her best or at the least be able to run um, underneath her uh, and get some get a piece of the, the pie and a grade one placing. The other grade one that day for the boys, it's the American Pharaoh. Uh, you've got a son of American Pharaoh in there, American Theorem for one of our clients, George Papa Padromo. The morning line favorite is Eight Rings, who had that mishap in the Del Mar Futurity and, and veered in and caused a couple uh, lost riders there. Drayden Van Dyke was injured in that race. Uh, to me, Express Train could not have been more impressive. He's four to one on the morning line. If you can lock me in on that price right now, Mark, I probably would make one of the biggest bets of my life. Uh, but I don't think I'm getting anywhere near four to one on Express Train. Well, it's a really difficult race to decipher because you have the two favorites or you know two of the contenders from the dumb opportunity that didn't get to run in that race because of the mishap. So. It's tough to gauge their form. The other horses that did run in that race, the, the final time was very slow. And so it's difficult to have any kind of conviction to back those horses. Uh, I can see why you like Express Train. He obviously broke his maiden by 14 and a quarter lengths, but in his debut, eight rings beat him easily by six and a quarter lengths. So between those two, um, you know, if eight rings gets to run his race, which conceivably he probably will, he took care of Express Train easily in there only match up together so um it's it, it's an interesting situation with how it, it plays out and then obviously like you said with american theorem um giving george papadromo a big look on on the big stage to make an impact stretching out the son of american pharaoh obviously the race is called the american pharaoh so that would be a nice story and then steve asmussen ships one in from um saratoga that runs second in the hopeful by the name of shoplifted and mark latt to the outside with collusion and losing stretching out off a pair of nice wins so i think contention runs deep i think the one angle that you can take is maybe throw out the horses that actually ran and completed the maturity because um that race was ugly visually and ugly on paper as well then saturday we've got three more preps uh starting with the john henry Turf Championship, a mile and a quarter on the grass. 
A uh, big client of ours, Richard Baltus, has Oscar Dominguez in. Another ownership group client of ours, Slam Dunk Racing, has Cleopatra Strike. To me, it's a real competitive race, Mark. I know you're a guy who likes low and speed. That could be Acclimate, who got away to win the Del Mar Handicap. So to me, this one was kind of a puzzle. Uh, on a quick look, I didn't have a real strong opinion in the race. Yeah, it is contentious. You could pretty much give a shot to all the horses in the field. Um, I, I do think you have a good point there with Acclimate stretching out or you know, not really stretching out, but um, potentially lone speed with a, a number of these horses having run behind him in both the San Juan Capistrano and the Del Mar handicap. So um, that's a potential angle to look at. <clears throat> but like you said, it's a contentious field. Um, I don't really see any of these horses moving forward and making much of an impact in the Breeders' Cup when you get the Euros that are going to come in and they are going to specialize at these longer distances on the grass. And uh, the Rodeo Drive, a grade one, goes as the ninth race. That's a mile and a quarter turf race, fillies and mares. Again, we were re well represented by clients in here. Slam Dunk Racing, Medallia Racing, Abundanza Racing has got two horses in. Uh, it's a field of six, and interesting to me that they bring Bo Recall back to California. At last, uh, speaking with the Slam Dunk team, they were going to go to Keeneland and run in the First Lady. So they must think this is an easier spot. Although when I look at Bo Recall, I have a little question mark about her at a mile and a quarter. Um, so that, to me, Mark, I think she's definitely the most talented mare in here, but I have a little bit of a concern about if she wants to run that far. Yeah, I'm not concerned about the distance. Uh, she's She comes with a late kick, and I think since she's turned the corner recently with her streaks, you know, her, her streak of first and second place finishes in her last six, she hasn't run a mile and a quarter. So those races before were when she was with Simon Callahan and she wasn't really at her top form. So the distance doesn't concern me there. Um, again, it's a race where there doesn't appear to be a whole lot of speed. So uh, she's going to have to try and probably close into a slow pace. Mirth to the inside might be the one that goes to the lead, but the rest of them um, seem to want to come from off of it. It is interesting, you know, about Boracall coming here. And I think that the answer to that is in the fact that Basilica is missing from this race. And um, as we know um, from from our information, she's going to be run she's going to be running at Keeneland because of the issues that Jerry Hondorfer has at Santa Anita. So no Basilica in this race. She's dominated this division for most of the past two years. So it makes sense for Boer Call to show up here and um, off of her recent form, both at Del Mar, at Belmont, Churchill, Fairgrounds, she's definitely the one to beat in here. Um, excellent sunset. They've always had a lot of hope for her, a lot of promise in this filly. She came back off a long layoff and ran a good race in uh, allowance second level at Del Mar. She was beaten half a length, but she's going to have to step up and meet, meet those high expectations they have of her um, in this race if she's going to be able to get the money. The final grade one on Saturday, the awesome again for the older uh, handicap division. We see McKenzie in here, who's right at the top of everyone's list as the top older horse in the country. Higher power. I love the way he won the Pacific Classic. Seeking the soul did not fire a jump that day as the favorite. To me, Mark, I'm really zeroed in on the two favorites in here. McKenzie, a very nice horse, has maybe a little, a little more tactical edge than higher power, but I do think higher power is the kind of horse who's improving at the right time, getting very good for John Sadler, and I look for it to be a real good contest 
uh, between these two horses. And I really have a hard time getting past those two. Uh, I think they're going to pretty much dominate this race. Yeah, I agree with you. It seems like a two-horse race. Uh, unfortunately, it only came up a field of six, just like the Rodeo Drive. So you have a couple of six-horse fields in grade ones, which isn't ideal, but I guess it's what we're left with. And, uh, the, you know, they both are coming off of impressive performances. Higher Power had his coming out party in the Pacific Classic. And McKenzie has been solid all year um, and ran a huge race in the Whitney. So uh, I think McKenzie's going to get first run. We'll see if higher power uh, and Flavian Pratt can run them down. But um, it's, a, it's you know, with those two, it makes it um, an interesting race to follow and, and definitely potential Breeders' Cup Classic contenders, um, the both of them, or if someone can step up and upset them. And then Sunday, they haven't drawn yet. We'll have more Breeders' Cup preps at Santa Anita. Then, Mark, you and I hit the road. We'll be at Keeneland for their opening weekend. We're really looking forward to the trip. So uh, any uh, prospective clients or friends, come on by, and I uh, hope we can say hello and uh, have a cocktail back there and make some more connections with uh, the good people in Kentucky. So, uh, Mark, that's about it. Anything else to add? I think that's about it. Looking forward to Fall Stars weekend. And like you said, uh, we're going to be posting on Twitter um, a way to reach out to us if you're interested in learning more about our services, our platform. Um, happy to have an informal conversation at the track in the mornings or during the races or meet up for a drink somewhere in and around Lexington as we'll be there for five days. Sounds good. So we'll be on the road and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next episode. Thanks again to Mike Piazza from Zilla Racing. Hope you've enjoyed For the Love of the Game presented by Horsebills.com.